Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Will Holmes. I'm chairman of the board of the Baltimore City Chamber of Commerce. I'm very pleased to be here with you today. This is our uh, first economic update online with the Federal Reserve. I'm very excited to be here with Mr. Tom Barkin. And I'm going to let everyone in. We still have some folks actually joining. So I'm going to admit all. I'm going to just give a, just a few more minutes. We have some folks that probably join as we get started. Tom, can you hear me okay? I can. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. While glad we, to be here. Oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. Say again, please. No, I just said glad to be here. All right. So I just want to share the agenda with everyone. So once again, we're here with Tom Barkin, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Today is our economic update. And we'll, this is gonna be a conversation on the economy, recent Fed actions and prospects for recovery. Today's agenda, I'll give the welcome. And then after that, we'll hear remarks by Mr. Tom Barkin from Federal Reserve Bank. Then we have some questions that were submitted by chamber members. And then after that, we'll have Q&A with those who are on the phone. I'm excuse me, we were on, actually online with us today. Uh, as part of the welcome, first, thank you all to our chamber members, uh, for all those who are friends of the chamber for joining us for this very important uh, webinar. I would like to uh, introduce Tom Barkin by reading his bio to you, just for the record. Mr. Tom Barkin is the president and chief executive officer of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In this role, he is responsible for monetary policy, bank supervision, payment services, and the Fed's national IT organization. He serves on the Fed's chief monetary policy body, the Federal Open Market Committee. He is on the ground, continually in the Fed's fifth district, which covers South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Washington, DC, West Virginia, and Maryland, and has brought real focus to the less prosperous parts of that district. Tom joined the Richmond Fed in January of 2018. Before that time, he was a senior partner and chief financial officer at McKinsey & Company, a worldwide management consulting firm. He also oversaw McKinsey's offices in the Southern United States. Tom served on the board of directors for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta from 2009 to 2014, and was the board's chairman from 2013 to 2014. Mr. Barkin is a member of the Emory University Board of Trustees and the Greater Washington Partnership. Tom is a native of Tampa, Florida, and attended Harvard University, where he earned his undergraduate, MBA, and law degrees. Mr. Barkin, welcome, sir. Thank you so much. Great. Um, and thank you, Will, for the uh, intro and for inviting me to be with uh, this group virtually. Um, we do value our relationship uh, with you and appreciate the time. Um, what I thought I might just do is share a few perspectives on where the economy is, um, share with you the indicators I look at to try to get a sense of where it might be headed, and then open it up to questions of all sorts. And, you know, hit me as hard as you want. I, uh, my, my background is a business, not research, as Will said. And so uh, I've got uh, some views that might be a little bit different, and I look forward to sharing those. Um, 
these are my own thoughts, not that of the FOMC officially or the Federal Reserve System, and that'll give me freedom to be uh, as direct as I want to be. But let me just start with the big picture. You all know this, but it's sometimes helpful just to take a step back. Economic activity fell off a cliff in March and April as we shut down. It increased rapidly in May and early June as the economy reopened. It began to flatten in late June and July as the virus resurged. Over the last month, we have seen the virus recede, though cases remain at elevated levels uh, while the death rate has dropped. Uh, with every month that goes by, vaccines are becoming ever more proximate, but the rollout and their effectiveness are still hard to predict. Recent data, most notably the jobs report, has surprised on the upside. Congress has not yet passed another stimulus measure, which creates risk to the less fortunate. Though to be fair, in the numbers themselves, it's hard to find uh, that impact, at least so far. Um, as I try to look at where we are, I can't get uh, much insight out of growth rates because we went down so fast and then you're coming back off a lower base. So I think it's helpful to talk about levels. Where are we today versus where we were pre-COVID? The unemployment rate's 8.4%. It was 3.5% in February. You've got 12 million fewer Americans employed. That's down 7.5%. Now, spending is coming back faster than employment, and so consumption is down only 4.8% from its peak. And within that, spending on goods, think furniture, think automobiles, is actually up 6.4%. But spending on services, restaurants, retailers, and the like, is still down 9.7%. Our best proxy for business investment is down about half a percent since February, though I have to say it was lagging even then. And of course, government spending is up 54% as fiscal policy has attempted to bridge the downturn. So where are we going from here? And I'll just say predicting is never easy, and I'd argue it's harder now. We have virus uncertainty, of course. We have fiscal uncertainty. Is there gonna be another package, and if so, when? And we've got political uncertainty, as you see in the paper every day. So as I look at the outlook, I'm watching five factors that might be interesting to you. Uh, the first is the infection rate. Um, and obviously, the path of the economy depends on the path of the virus. I look at the rolling seven-day average. It peaked in April at about 32,000 per day. By early June, it was 21,000 a day. But by the end of July, it had escalated to 67,000 a day, almost double where it was in April. You know, as of a week ago, it was at 39,000. So it's still higher than the April peak, but well down from where it was at the end of July. On the positive side, that's infections. And hospitalization and death rates are dropping because infections are skewing younger and treatment protocols are improving. But if you still keep an elevated infection levels, there are real practical and psychological uh, implications. On the psychological front, uh, a higher case rate raises economic uncertainty, and that affects businesses and their hiring or their spending or their investment. On the practical front, there's significant parts of the economy, think amusement parks or cruise lines, that remain capacity constrained, which reduces the potential of the economy. So the first thing I look at is infection. The second is initial jobless claims. Uh, and a reminder, these are just the people who first file for unemployment benefits. Um, before the virus struck, they'd been running in the low 200,000 rate per week. They, of course, went up with the shutdown uh, and with enhanced unemployment insurance, but they've remained stubbornly high even after that enhancement has lapsed. Seasonally adjusted, uh, they were 870,000 uh, this morning, uh, 866,000 a week ago. For context, the 
the prior record high was 695,000 in 1982. So even now, six months after the shutdown, we're shedding jobs every week at a rate that exceeds our prior 50 year high. So what's happening there? Well, some of it can be explained technically. To get the, su the supplemental pandemic assistance payments, applicants have to apply for unemployment and be turned down. But I also talked to a lot of small businesses that post PPP are resizing their businesses to match lower levels of demand. I talked to bigger businesses who tell me to be prudent. They're streamlining their workforces. You may have seen Nike yesterday in the context of a very good quarter, still had a big overhead reduction program. Um, and so if this rate of initial unemployment continues, you just have to imagine the recent improvements in the labor market are gonna slow. The third thing I watch is labor force participation. How many people are looking for work? It's 61.7%, which is 1.7 points below its rate in February. The level had been creeping up over the last few years, despite the aging of our workforce. But of course, and this always happens in a downturn, you know, as people lose their jobs, some of them choose not to look for another one. Um, but is it gonna bounce back in this recovery the way it usually does? Or are we gonna see that escalating care responsibilities at a time when childcare and schools are closed or remote and elder care facilities are perceived to be less safe is gonna make it difficult to commit to work? Are baby boomers gonna leave the workforce given the increased health risk? These matter because without strong participation by women and those 55 and up, our recovery is gonna be limited by inability to get workers. And I already hear employers, particularly in sectors like manufacturing, technology, and healthcare, struggling with absenteeism and unfilled jobs. The fourth thing I watch is the savings rate. In February, it was 8.3%, which was up a bit since the financial crisis. In April, it was 34%. Now that's given the scale of stimulus payments and the reduced spending by many of us who were sheltered at home. But in July, it was still 18%. And all of this is in the context of personal income being up 4.8% because of the enhanced unemployment and the stimulus payments. The net of all this is there's a lot of money in people's pockets that could right now be cushioning the cessation of fiscal stimulus. And it could pro propel the economy at some point. You may remember after 9-11, President Bush urged everyone to go shopping as a patriotic act. Uh, in November, retail sales were through the roof. But what, what is it gonna take for the people with the money in their pocket to be confident they can shop or travel or go to movies or eat out without putting their families at risk? And once we get to that point, are people gonna spend the money? or are they gonna keep it as savings or use it to pay down debt? Again, you've got a lot of potential out there. The question is just whether it's gonna get unlocked. The final thing I watch is inflation. Um, through the last cycle, it stayed below our 2% target the whole cycle. The price level actually fell from February to April, as it often does in a downturn, before rebounding strongly for the last four months. But on balance, over the last 12 months, core PC inflation is still moderate at 1.3%. But one can imagine another scenario. Businesses are making their stocking decisions for the next few quarters right now in the context of demand uncertainty and supply uncertainty. You know, they tell me they're being cautious and that reading is consistent with what you see in the retail trade data, meaning we're more likely to see stockouts than excess supply. If a demand surge were to happen, coincidence with supply shortages, maybe we'd start to see some strength in first half pricing. Now, speaking of inflation, the FOMC recently announced changes to our longer run goals and monetary policy strategy statement. 
Uh, we've said in order to anchor inflation expectations at 2%, we seek to achieve inflation that averages 2% over time. And as I said, it's modestly lagged that target for a while. In his speech, Chair Powell called this flexible average inflation targeting. The flexibility comes from the lack of a specific formula. In addition, we said we'll respond to shortfalls of employment from its maximum level. In the earlier version, it said we'd respond to deviations. In other words, a low level of unemployment alone wouldn't lead to preemptive increases in interest rates. Finally, it made explicit that meeting our mandate requires a stable financial system. Obviously, the net of all this is a message that the federal aim to keep rates low until such time as we see moderate overshoots of inflation or financial stability risks develop. Our statement last Wednesday reinforced that message, which was supported by projections in which the median respondent didn't have a rate increase through 2023. We also continue to engage in significant treasury and mortgage-backed bond purchases that provide additional support for the economy. I remain hopeful we can put this virus and the related uncertainty behind us, and if we can, there is untapped consumption which could give the economy a real lift. In the, in the, in the interim, the Fed is doing all that we can to try to provide support. And with that, Will, I'm glad to take on any questions, comments, criticisms, or input. Thank you, Tom. Before we go, so uh, before we go into these questions that were submitted prior, I want to just invite everyone who's online with us to please use the chat box. Okay, look for the chat icon. Uh, on your screen, and then just type in any questions that you may have. There are no such things as bad questions. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read those to Tom, and uh, he would. I know he'll be kind enough to uh, give his opinion on those on those questions. So, but uh, while you guys do that, I'm going to read these questions that were already submitted by members. And 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 Tom, you alluded to some of these already. But just to just make sure we cover everything. Uh, first question, what are your thoughts on the unemployment rate? Do you foresee its continued decline? Do you think a possible surge of COVID-19 could drive unemployment back up? Yeah, so, um, so I have to say in this downturn, the unemployment rate isn't the perfect metric because uh, it's just share of people looking for work. And as I said in my talk, I think there are going to be people who yesterday were working who tomorrow may not be looking for work because they'll be at home with their kids or with their parents. Um, you know, it's come back nicely. It was at 14 point something uh, in April, down to 8.5, and I think 8.4, and I think the last month uh, was a particularly good month. Um, there are some dynamics in there. We hired a bunch of census workers as a country, and so those will, they'll come out of the numbers. Uh, and as I said, while people are rehiring, uh, both from reopening and, uh, and other growth, there's also real issues of people continue to be laid off. So I think it's going to be a slow move for the unemployment rate. I think we had a, a nice drop down, but I think it'll be a few months, you know, of, of sort of relatively uh, uh, more modest recoveries in unemployment. It'll continue to move down, but I don't think at the rate that it has the last four or five months. And you can imagine why, right? We shut everything down. Now we're opening everything up. That's obviously going to bring a bunch of people who were temporary, uh, temporarily laid off back into the workforce. Uh, COVID is very relevant to it. Um, if you have a, a resurgence, which, you know, who knows whether we will or not, um, you're going to see people not transacting at restaurants or, uh, or retailers. And that'll, 
you know, have an impact on employment. On the other hand, if people start to get confidence in reengaging in the economy, let's say if you had a vaccine, I think, you know, it could come back much faster. And so there's a pretty wide range, I have to say, on these unemployment benefits. And I do think, again, that schools and elder care matter a ton. The more you may see the unemployment rate move down, but the labor force participation move the, the wrong way. And that might look good on a headline number, but it's not good if you got a bunch of potential workers who are forced to stay home to take care of their kids. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Next question. Does your data show how much the economic downturn has affected women and minorities? Yeah. Um, you know, what I'd start by saying is, you know, we've been on a 30-year path as a country. Uh, where we've lost a lot of middle-income, middle-class jobs. You know, think your classic manufacturing jobs. Where we've had growth has been uh, in the higher-end, technical, cognitive kind of jobs, and in the lower-end, in these personal contact service jobs. Um, the really depressing thing about this virus is it's, of course, you know, hit these entry-level personal service jobs the hardest. If there was a barbell before, it's gone after one end of the barbell quite specifically. And those jobs are disproportionately held by women, by uh, minorities, uh, and by young people. Um, you know, a lot of people get their start in a restaurant uh, or in a retailer. And so, um, you know, what you saw for sure at the beginning was um, people of color uh, and women. Uh, unemployment was hit harder than it was uh, of white men. Um, uh, you also saw an issue of participation, particularly uh, with women. Now, some of that has clawed back, um, but you've still got uh, elevated unemployment for minorities. Uh, and the, the unemployment for women is is comparable, but the unemployment rate for minorities uh, is elevated, and the participation rate for women has taken a step back. Our next question is, higher prices due to inflation are hurting the unemployed and lower wage earners. Where do you see inflation going over the next few years? Well, um, I do think there's a risk next year. Uh, as I said, if you have um, demand come back, particularly with a virus, that it might meet uh, less supply. Think, think for a second if we all got in an airline tomorrow when they're only flying half of a schedule. But longer term inflation, I think, is gonna take a while to come back. And so um, that's really being driven by forces like uh, price transparency through the internet and market power by retailers like Walmart and Home Depot. I like to say Dollar Tree doesn't want to sell stuff for $2. They only want to sell stuff for $1. And so, you know, I just think they're real resistance to uh, pricing. I'll also say that uh, prices, inflation has not been elevated now for years. And over the last several years, actually wages have been going up faster than prices. And if you're in the segment where um, wages have been going up faster than prices, which actually have been more the low end of the income spectrum than the high end over the last four or five years, um, you've actually made some gains versus uh, inflation. So I just, the first part, uh, you know, higher prices hurt everyone. But I, I will say that, um, especially entry-level jobs in the last three years, you've seen a big increase in those entry-level salaries. Part of it's minimum wage, part of it's, you know, Target and Walmart going to $15 an hour, uh, but their wages have actually been elevating vis-a-vis -vis inflation. Okay, our next question is, 
What are your thoughts on a possible eviction crisis? Well, you know, I've asked my team, I see Peter on the phone smiling because I've asked him to, to help me with this. Uh, so let's just take a step back and, and uh, see what's happening. Uh, you know, first of all, uh, you have a downturn. You had for a while record levels of unemployment. Uh, you have a lot of people not getting uh, incomes. You then have these stimulus payments and these elevated unemployment payments. And so maybe there's a little money in people's pockets to help tie them over for a short time, but not for a long time. Uh, many, the federal government and many states have passed eviction moratoriums. And so uh, you have a situation where people aren't getting evicted. Um, I also understand that many court systems, including in Maryland, are pretty overwhelmed. And so not only do you have moratoriums on evictions, if you thought you were going to start evicting people at the day after the moratorium, you better think again, because it's going to take some time. So um, there's some positives, obviously, to this, where you don't have people on the streets. But it is a pretty fundamental interference with what normally happens in an economy. And I just, I try to put myself in the hands of someone who doesn't have enough money and say, what are you going to pay first? And I think you're going to pay the things you have to pay. You're going to buy food. And if you're not going to get evicted for not paying rent, I think you're not going to pay rent. And so there's going to be a, a whole set of people with significant uh, money that they owe and, not, and are not going to be able to pay. And a bunch of landlords who, you know, they're private sector people who have real estate are not going to be able to collect. And maybe there's some nice accommodation that'll happen where everyone will negotiate a settlement, but I'm worried it's not going to be that nice. So I think it's a real, I think it's a real topic. And it's not obvious to me that the, uh, that we figured out a landing spot for this, you know, interference uh, with the, interference of the economy on people's ability to pay rent and the interference in the market that is implied. And the more things, the longer things draw out, I think the more uh, painful that will be. Remember what we had with foreclosures back in, you know, 2009, 2010, a similar kind of situation. And, and it was an overhang for a long time. We've talked about the eviction, uh, looming eviction, uh, possibly the looming eviction crisis for a few months now here in the chamber and with landlords and uh, real estate investors. And uh, you know, quite frankly, people are obviously very worried about it. They're not getting paid, but also uh, the thought of, well, actually, I'm sorry, and also the people who do have money though, who are just essentially waiting uh, for that, that the opportunity to take advantage of things on sale, uh, property on sale. So it's, uh, it's uh, very interesting uh, and sad situation, but uh, you know, we, here in the chamber, we have all those sides. So uh, yeah. we're, we're very interested to see how that all works out. And we're hopeful it'll, uh, you know, it won't turn into a dramatic increase in homelessness uh, and the loss of a lot of small businesses who have been here in Baltimore where, where prices are, are low. It's very uh, easy as far as pricing to get into the real estate investment market here. Uh, so there's a lot of people with many, many, many properties uh, with lots of renters who are not paying. So uh, we're very interested to see how that all works out. And, you know, you always have to worry about second order effects. So, you know, it might be that two years from now, uh, a bunch of people stay in housing that wouldn't otherwise have stayed in housing and um, a bunch of, uh, you know, lower income landlords, lower rent landlords are uh, disadvantaged. You always have to ask, what are they going to do next? And maybe they'll sell it to the next landlord. 
or maybe they'll plow it under and we're going to hit the next downturn without enough housing. I mean, it's a real, you always have to watch these market effects and, uh, you know, no, no, nobody wants to put people on the streets, but I do worry about the question of um, what happens to the housing stock at the end of this. Agreed. Our next question submitted by members is staying home slows the virus, but hurts particular parts of the excuse me, of the economy, like restaurants and tourism. This will probably last until people feel safe again. Do you have any data or projections on projected recovery? I think you touched on this a little earlier, but do you mind restating that? Well, I mean, you got to start with the virus. I mean, so if you tell me we have a vaccine, my projections are different than if you tell me we have a second wave. Um, but my current projections are we're not going to have either of those in the next, you know, nine or 12 months. And so I'm just working against a model where we've kind of figured out how to live with this. Um, in a way that doesn't elevate infection, and we're going to kind of live like that. And if that's the case, you know, hotels and airlines and restaurants will have a gradual uh, path back, not a strong path back. And there are certain things, right, uh, traveling to Europe. I don't think so. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to get, my wife is not getting on a plane to go there anytime uh, soon. Uh, going to a... a a Ravens game. Well, maybe, but I think, you know, 70,000 people in a stadium, I think that's pretty hard to get your head around. And so I just don't think until people feel safe, you're going to have that. And so the mathematical way to think about it is the last 5% of the economy is constrained until such time as either we get uh, treatment protocols or a vaccine such that people feel safe, or as often happens with these viruses, they mutate and become you know, more contagious, but less uh, uh, virulent, right? And so, you know, the Spanish influenza is still around. It's just called the flu and people live with it. And so that, that's a possibility too. But somewhere in there, until you feel safe going out, I just think that last 5% of the economy is just not going to come back. I, I recently traveled uh, actually to Jamaica uh, in early August. And uh, yeah. I got I tell you, I, uh, I, I felt safer there than here. I mean, they, uh, their procedures and, and the things that they're doing in order to ensure safety and, and to screen people, uh, I, was, I was actually very, very impressed. And uh, I'll say that I feel like people took it a lot more seriously. And the government there was, uh, they were on it. I have to applaud them. They had a tracking, uh, a tracking app that tracked everywhere we went. So we had to fill out paperwork. Everywhere we went, we were constantly being sprayed or, or given hand sanitizer. Uh, I, I was really, really impressed with what Jamaica did. And I, 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 you know, and I really wish that maybe we had done some of those in the early days as well. But you know, well, I mean, they, I, mean I, I worked the U.S. Women's Amateur Golf Tournament at Rockville at Woodmont Country Club. Um, and, uh, you know, anyone who was inside the road, anyone who's on the grounds, had to take a test five days beforehand, pass it take a test when they get there, quarantine 24 hours, and then you could be inside the ropes and you were in a bubble, you know, with the local hotel. Totally doable, right? There's lots of things we can do if you've got widespread testing and, you know, enough compliance. And I'd include schools in that too. Um, but I think the challenge is we just haven't gotten enough scale on the testing and enough commitment on the compliance. Agreed. Next question. Uh, what does your data show on credit availability to small businesses, women, and minorities? 
Well, uh, credit availability to small businesses has never really been good. I mean, uh, you know, most small businesses uh, put their credit on their credit card. Um, and, you know, there are very few people, uh, you know, who want to give that uh, credit. And I'd say, um, you know, on the positive side, you know, the PPP certainly, you know, uh, through a lot of credit availability, hopefully it'll be forgiven loans soon uh, into the small business population. But I don't think that's normal times. And, you know, I think most financial institutions, as you would expect, um, you know, are tightening their credit in a downturn. I mean, they're nervous about the situation. And, and so I think you do see a tightening uh, of credit. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen any data, you know, on, on women. I do think uh, minorities, I don't think because you're minorities, but I think there are other factors that are very much uh, part of that population, which suggests that they do have a, a strong uh, issue. And a lot of the work the Fed does, whether it be fair lending uh, or CRA, which isn't explicitly targeted minorities, but is targeted lower income neighborhoods, which often are minority, is to trying to make sure that you know banks are incented to get credit to uh, to minorities. So we, we work against that that hard, but that's been an issue for a while. Definitely continues to be an issue. Uh, we we work hard to try and help our small businesses and minority businesses access capital, uh, and that by far is their greatest challenge, our greatest challenge. Because uh, I've been in business fifteen years, it's always been a challenge for me, uh, just in order so I can scale. So I can take a bit. So if I win a larger contract or a government contract, it's, you know, it's just difficult getting enough capital to just kind of cover things for the first 30, 60, 90 days until I get paid. So that's, that's a common thing. Also the, um, when COVID first hit and people were applying for the PPP and EIDL, uh, the Baltimore Development Corporation, uh, which is a fantastic organization here in the city of Baltimore, we worked with them and provided technical assistance. And one thing I, I probably talked to, hundreds of people on the phone about uh, their particular situation, but a common theme was they didn't have their uh, adequate accounting practices in place to be able to apply for the EIDL or the PPP. They weren't tracking how they pay themselves or their partners or their 1099s. Uh, if they paid their employees, it was you know sometimes sporadic as far as how they kept track. Sometimes you PayPal, sometimes you check, kind of wherever the money was. And obviously those needs to be, those, uh, that needs to be in line and, and they need to have better practices in order for them to be able to even apply and qualify. And then of course, if those things aren't in place, if they were able to get funding, if those things aren't in place for them to actually show that they have been making payments as, as required, then they won't be able to turn that loan into a grant. So uh, there's definitely some challenges there that they're continuing to linger in that regard. Um. Well, I, I, I'll say I have some empathy for the Small Business Administration. They kind of weren't built to deliver $700, trillion, $700 billion of payments to small businesses that are going to turn into grants in, in a week or two. And Congress passed a law and, and turned to them and said, okay, figure it out. Uh, but I would totally agree with you that the folks who had more sophisticated counsel, which tended to be larger businesses, um, accounting firms, and the like, they were able to get there faster. And the people who didn't have good counsel really struggled. And that's a great role. I, I've seen a number of chambers and probably yours too that, you know, pitched in to try to help a lot of these businesses. Because it was a, you know, it was a real need, a real opportunity, um, but, you know, way too difficult to access. Right. It, it, was, it was really pretty heartbreaking. You know, to talk to a few hundred people and a majority of them weren't able, and these are smaller companies, weren't able to get their paperwork together to apply. 
But what one thing that it did give us the opportunity to do is create some really good programming to help them with that, with their accounting practices. Mm -hmm. and, and we did some online, six week online classes. And then people were actually able to get funding. Uh, so, but you know, we continue to, to give technical assistance. That's, I mean, that's what we focus on here in Baltimore, the Baltimore City Chamber. Good. So our next question is, um, how does the Fed plan to support the economy? Well, um, you know, the, our best lever, our classic lever is interest rates. And we've taken those down to zero and we've made clear that they'll stay zero, you know, for some time until, you know, we start to see financial risks or inflation start to spike. Um, and that supports the economy because, you know, it helps people who want houses or cars, you know, interest rate sensitive sectors. And you've seen big revivals in the residential market and in the, you know, automobile market. It helps businesses that want to invest because it lowers the rates. Uh, for people who have debt that's floating, it actually lowers the interest rate they have to pay. So there's a lot of stimulus that uh, the rate rate decreases give. Uh, the second thing we've done is uh, we've invested significantly in uh, a bunch of backstop facilities to make sure lending markets operate. Most notably, we've been purchasing treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That lowers interest rates on those and makes sure that um, and that supports the mortgage market and also this very benchmark uh, U.S. Treasury rate. Uh, but we've got all these other lending facilities, which they're not being used so much because they're designed explicitly as backstops. But pretty much every facility we've announced, whether it be municipal lending facility or the corporate bond facilities, the second we announced it, those markets got back into line and rates got under control. And of course, uh, you know, getting money to businesses means people keep stay employed and, you know, getting money to municipalities mean that, you know, they too can help finance their obligations. And so there's the direct way, lowering rates, and then there's playing backstop for the lending markets. Those are the, the biggest things we've been doing. And then finally, our final question submitted by members, and also to take the opportunity for those who are online with us, I see that some of you already have submitted questions, so we have about maybe seven or so. We're going to get to those in just one moment. If you are if you are joining us online, please take this opportunity to type in your question. There's no such thing as a bad question, uh, and Mr. Barkin has agreed to answer those for us. So our last question that was submitted by members prior to this uh, this event: How does the Fed work with the White House and Treasury? Well, I don't mean this the wrong way, but we don't really work with the White House. Um, I, th I think the better way to, I'm not criticizing the question, but the better way would be Congress and Treasury. And what I mean by that is um, our mandate comes from Congress. Uh, they told us, you know, your job is maximum employment with stable prices and moderate interest rates. And so, you know, we accept that mandate uh, given to us from Congress. And every so often, like with the CARES Act, Congress gives us more things to do the Main Street Lending Program would be an example of something that was defined by Congress in the CARES Act. Um, importantly, uh, after the last crisis in Dodd-Frank, um, the, the Dodd-Frank legislation says there's a certain set of backstop facilities we can only operate in concert and with the approval of Treasury. Uh, and so all these lending facilities I talked about um, are actually the capital, we're not allowed to lose money. We don't, we're not a grant organization or a backstop lending organization. They're all funded by capital, which is given by Treasury, and the terms of those are agreed to with Treasury. So we work quite closely with Treasury on 
the size of these facilities, the definition of the facilities, the terms of the facilities, uh, because, you know, if you will, they're the capital holder as the uh, elected representatives of, of the people. And the Congress, you know, we're in constant conversation. The chairman testified the last couple of days in terms of, you know, what we're doing because we're ultimately accountable to Congress. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All right, we're going to go right into our Q&A right now. Let's see if we can pull these questions out. Okay, so I'm going to start at the top. Okay. Oh, also, I just want to do a quick, a quick commercial for the uh, for the for the uh, Federal Reserve. So, uh, if if for everyone who's online, if you scroll to the very top of the chat box, I added some links before we got started. Okay. And so we want you to stay in touch with the Federal Reserve Bank. I want you to stay in touch. So the first link, you can get news and research from them. That means it's incredible information. So please click that link. In fact, I'm going to ask you to do it now while you're online. Click the link while we're talking. Just double, double, uh, you know, do two things at one time and listen to us, but also just fill out the information so that you can get updates from the Federal Reserve. You're a business owner or in business or you work for a company, it's important to have access to this information. Uh, you can also text NEWS News to 33777. Okay, so you can receive updates there. Also, you can follow the conversation on Twitter. There's that link, twitter.com forward slash Richmond Fed. And then of course on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. So that's right in the chat. Those links are live. You can click those and start staying in touch. Okay. Tom, you ready for the first question? I'm ready. All right. So this comes from Charles Jones. He writes, can you discuss the rollout of the Main Street Lending Program and what the Reserve is doing to get banks to participate? Okay. So in the CARES Act, uh, um, there was probably, I want to call it uh, 500 billion, it was a little less, 460 billion, I think, of capital uh, dedicated and committed to something called a Main Street Lending Program. Um, and we've been trying together with Treasury, as I said earlier, to define that and roll it out. And so we've now uh, rolled out and announced that uh, we are in the business of uh, providing five-year loans with the first two years uh, of principal and interest. Um, deferred, uh, and you know, at a what I think is an attractive uh, interest rate. Um, importantly, they would be underwritten by banks, uh, who would then sell ninety-five percent of them to uh, this facility. Uh, you know, we've had very modest take-up, if I'm being honest. Um, uh, certainly, against what I think the hopes of Congress would have been, and even in the testimony yesterday, there was a lot of back and forth on why. Uh, we have tried pretty hard to you know, make these terms uh, hit the market um, for a business that was in otherwise good shape and had a temporary downturn, but has good prospects on the other side. Um, you know, we can't really underwrite them ourselves. We don't have a whole underwriting arm. And so you really do need to go through banks. And I guess my sense is with the economy coming back, 
the banks see this as a binary play. Either they like the credit, in which case, why not keep it? Or they don't like the credit, in which case, why should they keep 5% of it? Um, and I just don't think they're finding that much credit that is between stuff we really like and want to hold and stuff we're willing to hold 5% of. I think it's just a very narrow space. Now, if the economy turns down again, it might get a lot of usage. And so I think it may well fit into a backstop facility. But what we're doing right now is we've sort of laid it out. We've tweaked it probably six or seven times. Size of the loan, what the EBITDA coverage ratios are, uh, and the like. And like I said, the participation has been really modest. And uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't want to kid you on that. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, obviously, the thing you could do is take a lot more credit risk. And I just remind you that the terms of this have to get agreed with Treasury. And I think Treasury uh, in those discussions is pretty comfortable with the level of credit risk. So it's not something we can do unilaterally. Okay. Our next question is from Jan Eveland. She writes, how can we continue to support the huge federal debt we currently have? What would you look for in assessing the impact of federal debt on the economy? Well, thanks. I, I do think the debt has gotten to be quite significant. Um, you know, it was 106% at the end of World War II. By 2007, it was 38% as a percent of GDP. It's now projected this year to be over 100% again. Um, and there's nothing immediate about that. Um, you know, it'll, Japan's at 200 something percent. You can operate an economy uh, with it, but I'm not sure we ought to aspire to do that. And in particular, uh, there's a Hemingway character in The Sun Also Rises who got asked, you know, how did you go bankrupt? And he said, gradually and then suddenly. And the point is with low interest rates, you can take on a lot of debt, but at some point your creditors are going to say, I don't like the credit risk on the other side. And if and when they say that, they're going to demand a higher interest rate. And that higher interest rate, you know, puts the country in a squeeze and puts the economy in a squeeze. So I don't think that's where we want to go. I think that, and I think the good news is, um, you know, the levers, which are spend less, tax more, um, or grow faster, are in front of us. I saw a thing on the Today Show about eight years ago where they had a tea partier and a union member and a, um, a teacher and a, um, a student and a retiree. They had one of sort of every uh, segment of our political class debating how to balance the budget. And the, the eight of them did it in 20 minutes. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff one could do that would have a huge impact. But you need political will, and I'm just not sure uh, we're there yet. I also should say right now, spending to get through this crisis is what governments are for. So I'm really talking about getting to the other side of the crisis and then taking on the gradual, responsible set of things that one does on revenue and spending and growth to help you know, bring the deficit under control. But again, I, you know, it's not that it can't be done, but I'm just not confident whether, yet whether it will be done. Okay, it looks like Mr. Aaron Emanuel has a few questions, has five questions. Let's see how many others we have. Okay, let me make sure we have enough time for everyone. All right, so Mr. Emanuel writes, first, how does the general public redeem uncurrent coins if the bank refuses to accept them? 
Wait, say it again. How's the federal government redeem what? Uh, he writes uncurrent coins if the bank refuses to accept them. I'm not sure what that means. Maybe we can ask him, do you, do you have any idea what that might mean? I can ask him for some greater. I mean, po possibly that's a, you know, Buffalo quarter or something from way back when. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, I think if a bank's not going to redeem a thing of currency, I'm not sure we're redeeming currency the banks aren't redeeming, so. Okay. And Mr. Emanuel, if you're still on, please, if, you know, if, if, if you'd like to give more detail on that, feel free to, to put that question into the uh, chat box. We'll come back to it. Second, he writes, can the general public drop coins off to the Federal Reserve? If so, what are the procedures and protocols that need to be taken? Uh, I, I think the place to go is, you know, either your bank uh, or, um, you know, a lot of grocery stores have these coin uh, depot situations. We're a business to business operation as opposed to a business consumer operation. So, you know, you wouldn't walk into our shop with a bag of or jar of coins, I think. Uh, but we do need the coins. So, I mean, just take, take them into the bank or take them into a, uh, one of those grocery store operations. That's probably the fastest way to do it. Okay. You also avoid all our security forces, which is probably good too. I've been there. It's a, it's a, it's a tight place to get into. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is, this is more questions on the coins. Uh, he writes, I have coins that are machine runnable and do fit the guidelines of what is considered uncurrent coins, but some financial institutions are saying they are mutilated. How do I address? I, I think uh, I think I may not be the right person on the non-current coin uh, question. Um, okay. Uh, maybe uh, you know if I can ask um, uh, Alex. I see you on the thing. If you wouldn't mind just taking, uh, we'll try to get you an answer um, on what the situation is there, and talk to some of our cash people, and they'll probably have a point of view, and we'll try to send you will something that you could forward on. I appreciate that. Thank you. And so the other questions were related to uh, the, the coins as well. So I'm going to go on to our next. And Mr. Emanuel, I promise you I'll get you the answers to those questions, okay? Next, from uh, Farha, he writes, are we in a recession? How do we know if it's a recession? That's a really good question um, because recessions are determined like three years from now. Someone will come, there's a committee actually that comes back and looks at all the data and decides whether we're in a recession. But I think the, the math on this one is pretty clear, which is, you know, recession is a significant drop in GDP, right? That's what we did in the second quarter. So call it, you know, March 15th, we went into a recession. And then when did we get out of a recession is when we started coming back to growth. And we clearly, you know, by June or July, we're into growth. So I think at this point, we've had a one quarter recession. That was uh, the second quarter of this year. And we're now back on a growth trajectory. We're not yet where we were before, though. That was part of what I said in the numbers up front. And we're probably still 5 or 6% below where we were a year ago. And even by the end of the year, we'll probably be 3 or 4% below where we are a year ago. So to get back to trend, I think we're talking somewhere, you know, 2021 or, or after. But I think right now we are out of that recession. Not that we couldn't go into another one a quarter from now, but we're, we're out of the second quarter recession. I'm pretty confident. Excellent. Chad Evelyn writes, what do you see happening to the real estate market in one to two years? Yeah. So if you're talking one to two years, so you got to think about it by segment. So residential real estate, I think is going to have a very strong 
uh, one to two years. I think multifamily, uh, it depends a little bit where it is. Um, you know, if you're in one of those uh, really big cities where uh, maybe the subway doesn't open and maybe people are uh, still having to work from home, I think there may be some challenges. But, you know, multifamily outside of the big cities, I think will do fine. Um, uh, retail, obviously, is going to be challenged. Um, and, you know, retail's fine if you've got a Walmart or a, or a Lowe's in there. But I think, you know, your classic mom and pop retail strip, you know, you know, we've had an acceleration to online that's been, you know, quite uh, significant. Uh, you've got big folks like, uh, you know, JCPenney going bankrupt. I think the malls are challenged. So I think retail real estate's a real challenge. Industrial real estate actually uh, feels pretty good. Amazon's opening about a billion different warehouses, same with a lot of the other uh, distributors. So, you know, I think it's definitely where you sit. The biggest uncertainty in my mind is office. And that's why I like that you asked in one to two years. I don't think there's going to be a massive change in office in the next one to two years for the simple reason that most people have 15-year leases. And uh, we don't really know what the future is going to be. So if you told me we're going to have a COVID future where, uh, you know, your chamber is only going to meet virtually from now till the end of time, then I would say there's a lot of downtown office buildings that are going to have problems. But if you tell me we're going to have a vaccine and everyone will go back somewhat close to where they are, then I think, you know, not a big issue. Some of the spaces, you know, the WeWork kind of spaces where they were leasing for long and then, uh, you know, renting out for short, I think may have some near-term challenges. Because when I talk to folks, the, uh, they all have questions about their office footprint, but they can't really act on them unless you already had a lease underway or, importantly, you had a short-term lease. So there are a number of short-term leases that are being canceled. I think those are the ones that are most vulnerable, but the longer-term lease, you can't really sublet it. So for most people, you kind of have it on your list. You're preparing for a renegotiation in two or three years. And in the interim, we'll see what the virus situation is. Very good information. All right. This next question is from Greg Robb. Greg writes, What's the biggest downside risk facing the economy? See, now, now you're going to let me have some fun. Um, so, I mean, I, let me say there's an obvious answer and maybe a less obvious answer. I think the obvious answer is we're all sitting here worried about a second wave, um, you know, the virus that shuts everything down again. And, of course, that would not be good for the economy. You know, we're all worried about some political turmoil in the fourth quarter that, you know, would somehow lead to a loss of business and consumer confidence. And, you know, that, that's in front of you too. I think about it a little differently. I think um, of the economy as a patient. And we've kind of been in the hospital and we're out of the hospital now, but we're still recovering at home. Um, but we're vulnerable. And just like when you're sick, it's the second flu, you know, that really hits a vulnerable patient. And that could be a lot of things. I mean, imagine for a second, you know, some big showdown with, uh, Iran or China. You know, imagine uh, a terrorist incident on U.S. soil like 9-11, but something else that wings in from left field. That, that's the thing I worry about the most, because I do think the economy's getting healthier, but we're not yet healthy. And so the notion of getting floored by the second thing after you've had the first one, I think that's my, uh, my sense of the biggest risk. Excellent. Our next question Farhad writes, 
Will minimum wage to $15 per hour affect small businesses? Uh, and remind me, I should know this. Uh, remind me, in Maryland, what is the path on the minimum wage right now? Uh, well, uh, it's, it's been uh, a political uh, issue over, the, over a number of years of attempts. Uh, primarily, uh, business owners, the argument is, hey, look, that's going to affect our, our, our profits, our margins. Uh, also, if you do it by region, let's say if you put, make everything $15 per hour minimum wage in the city, but a mile away in the county, it's, it's lower than my competitors have a distinct advantage. They can have lower prices, et cetera, and my customers can just go over there. And then, of course, also with online shopping, uh, I'm limited if there are places in other regions, right. and, you know, all that. So that's what, how business owners are, are saying. Folks who work, who are employees, obviously uh, living wage is, is obviously an issue and, and, and they would want to see so, that. Yeah, so, so here's how I'd put it. Um, you know, if you go back to your college economics, you'll know that, you know, if you raise the price of labor, you'll reduce the supply of labor or the demand for labor. So more will be supplied, but less will be demanded. And so, you know, that's probably an overarching concept. It must be the case that if you raise the minimum wage, that'll hurt small businesses. Um, there's actually, though, been a number of stories uh, and analyses and research papers looking at adjoining counties where one has raised the minimum wage and the other. You know, there's one famous one on the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. This seem to suggest that that, uh, that is not pronounced. Uh, and, of course, that may be because you're now putting more money in people's pockets who are then spending it in other places. You know, I would caution that that research wasn't done at a $15 minimum wage. It was moving from whatever, $6 to $8. So it's entirely possible that it wasn't that big of a deal when it went to $8, but it might be a really big deal when it goes to 15. Um, the thing that I appreciate uh, is before this downturn, uh, a whole bunch of um, employers uh, were in the marketplace moving to $15 right? Walmart was, Target was, Bank of America, I think, moved to $20. So, and they weren't doing it because the government said move to 15 or 20. They were doing it because entry-level talent was really hard to find. And that's what they needed to pay in the marketplace. So, you know, I, I personally would much prefer to have the marketplace work. And I'd actually prefer to have the marketplace work to provide people a living wage. I think when you start to interfere with that, you're just running an experiment that economists will come on both sides of. I don't think there's a a firm answer, but it's in part because it hasn't been tested, right? It might've been tested at $8. It hasn't been tested at $15. Very good information. Okay. Oh, thank you. Peter for sharing that. We have some folks who are looking for the link. It looks like uh, Peter shared that. Thank you. All right, Jan, Jan Walker, who for, actually is from uh, Department of Labor, shared uh, information on minimum wage. It looks like increases. $11 is, is here in Maryland is, is effective January 1st. Got it. 20. You see that, Tom? You can see it. Uh, um, uh, uh, no, I, and then uh, once in January of 2021, going up to 1250. Got it. And, uh, Yes, for 15 or more employees. So Jan Walker, uh, 
Imogo from Department of Labor is always a very good friend to the Chamber of Commerce. She always has my back. So even, even in the chat, she's, she's giving great information. Very good. All right, let's see. Okay, so I think we are, well, those are actually all of our questions. So as of right now, Tom, did you have any, um, and we're right on time, that's great. So do you have any closing remarks? I just say I really appreciate uh, everyone sticking with me for this. And, you know, we in the uh, Richmond Fed are very much committed to working with chambers like yours. I think you do uh, great stuff for the communities you're in. And in particular now, we talked about eviction, but childcare is another thing that's just burning in people's minds. And I think business groups getting together to try to, you know, help solve some of these really, you know, burning workforce problems is a, uh, is a really valued thing. And thank you for everything you do in that and for having me here today. Absolutely. Hopefully we can do it again. Gladly. Excellent. All right. I think this has been an amazing talk. I definitely learned a lot. I think uh, and I'm glad we were able to answer everyone's questions. Uh, once again, a reminder to uh, hopefully you click that link so you can stay in touch with the Federal Reserve Bank. It's great information. I will also share that link in a follow-up email after this webinar to make sure that everyone has a chance to stay in touch. And even the folks who did not, uh, who were unable to join us, who, who also signed up, uh, they will receive that information as well. We recorded this, so we will make this, uh, we'll put this on YouTube and various uh, social media places so that everyone can have access to it as well. I'll definitely make sure, Tom, you have a link so you can see uh, how great you look on camera today. <laughs> if there's anything you could do to add hair back to my head, I'd appreciate it. Hey, Photoshop, I'll see what I can do. But no, you look great. Uh, and, no, and, but more importantly, you, you gave great information. I learned a lot, and I, and I really appreciate this relationship between the Baltimore City Chamber of Commerce and the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate being here. All right. All right, we're going to conclude. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll make this recording available uh, for you to review later on. Thank you all so much.